Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares shares the story of Saul's amazing conversion. To use John 3, there was a time when you were born again. There was a time when God halted your life and said, well, you got to think about what you're doing. And let's give some thought to Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul the Apostle, and let's understand what God did to him that we might be able to value what God has done to us. Before Saul became the beloved Apostle Paul, he was a raging persecutor of Christians, hunting men and women from city to city as they attempted to flee his wrath, up until the moment he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares takes a closer look at the conversion of Saul to help us see our own pre-Christian rebellion. We're in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, for the start of a three-part message titled, Saul, Fighting God. I'd like to remind you that the most important thing about you, the most consequential thing about you, the most significant thing, the thing that matters the most about you has nothing to do with how smart you are, how beautiful you are, how many kids you have, what your family's like, how much money you make, where you work, where you live. The most significant thing about you, if you sit here this morning as a Christian, is that you are no longer right now the person you used to be before God. That you came to a place where God did something in your life that flipped your status before your creator. Um, to use some biblical words, there was a day on which you were regenerate. There was a, a moment when you were converted before God. There is an actual minute when you were justified before God. To use John 3, there was a time when you were born again. And that amazing event is the most important thing about you. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, in light of everything else, nothing else matters. In, in Matthew 13, he said, it's like the day you acquired the great treasure, that before that was hidden in a field, but it was so important, you sold everything you'd acquired up to that point to get that. That you were looking perhaps for something and you found this pearl of great price. He goes on to say in verses 45 and 46 of that chapter and says, and you took everything that you owned and you said, I'm trading all of this for that. And you acquired it. The entrance into the kingdom, the status before God, the fact that you became a child of God, that really is the most important thing about you. But sadly, we don't value things or appreciate things the way we ought to unless we think about them think about them a lot. Thus, we uh, pull them out of the drawer and appraise them and figure that this is important compared to everything else. We have to make that comparison. We have to, to evaluate that. And that's my hope as we continue our study through the book of Acts, that in chapters 9 and 10 of Acts, that we would learn to appreciate what God has done in our lives, that we would look at our own conversion, our regeneration, the day of our justification, and say, that was way more important than I thought. 
I value that. I thank God for that. It, it, it brings joy to my life, no matter what my circumstances might be, whether I'm having a good day or a bad day, a great season or a hard season. I am converted. I am regenerate. I am like the people in chapters 9 and 10 of Acts. Those things have happened to me. Everyone's got a different story, the testimony and circumstances that we're going to see in these conversions in chapters 9 and 10, uh, they're all different and, and they won't exactly apply to you, but the, but the truth will, the principle will, the point that you became a child of God and that God did something to flip your status before the creator, that you're justified, that you're regenerate, that you're a Christian. But that is something you're going to say, I, I can identify with that. He's introduced to us in the book of Acts as Saul from the city of Tarsus. He was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He had been very well-trained in a very strict sect of Judaism, and he was so frustrated with this new thing called Christianity. We call Christianity. At that time, it was called the way, this way of following this teacher, this rabbi from Nazareth, that he was wanting to shut it down, and that's a mild way to put it. As we'll read in the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9, he wanted to kill people. He started by arresting them. He got extradition papers from wherever he could find them, and he was going to bring them to Jerusalem and try them on charges of blasphemy, just like their leader was. Before Caiaphas, the high priest, we need to get, eradicate the world of these Christians. That is how much he hated the Christ of the people called disciples, the people of the way. And yet God gets a hold of him. He puts a big halt to his life and says, time for you to sit down and think about what you're doing. And I think all of us, if you sit here this morning as a genuine Christian, there was a time when God halted your life and said, well, you got to think about what you're doing. So I want to identify with that so that at the end of our sermon, and we spend some time this week kind of processing and, and reminiscing on what we did here, that you would say, I value my conversion more than ever before. So take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn to Acts chapter 9, and let's give some thought to Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul the Apostle, and let's understand what God did to him that we might be able to value what God has done to us. Acts chapter 9, verse number 1. It says, Saul, who we met holding the cloaks of those who would throw rocks at Stephen until he died, was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest, that's Caiaphas, and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Now, they're in Jerusalem. That's where the high priest is. And he's going to go to Damascus in Syria. That's uh, in the old roads, which really pattern themselves after the new roads that are paved in the Middle East. They, uh, it's about a 150-mile trek. And you're on horseback. You've got an entourage with you. So that's a, that's, that's a journey for the week. It's going to take some time. So that's how, even in that sense of what's happening there, is a commitment of the Apostle Paul to stamping this out. And because there was a lot of Jewish people living in the first century in Damascus of Syria, as Josephus tells us, the Roman historian, he's a Jewish historian, conscripted by the Romans to write a history, he says lots and lots of Jews in the first century living in Damascus. And so he knows that this sect that's following Jesus of Nazareth had already gotten there because of Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, they'd all come in this pilgrimage feast in Judaism and the calendar to celebrate there. Peter had preached, thousands were converted, and they went back to their homes. So there was certainly an enclave that was starting to grow in Damascus, and Saul of Tarsus said, well, then we're not going to have that. And the whole point was, here's the purpose clause, middle of verse 2, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is great 
That's a great name for what Christianity is. Remember, Christianity is not going to be adopted as the label for who we are until later in the book of Acts. It was a term of derision, little Christ, Christian, a little Christ. And that was you know, not a compliment. They hated Christ. And they were going to hate you because you're a Christian, a little Christ. It became a term of endearment that we say we are Christians. We love to be associated with Christ. But at this point, they were called people of the way, used repeatedly out throughout the book of Acts. It was the way that they identified with Christ because Christ said, you might remember in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they said, we're going to get on your road, your path. He talked a lot about paths. The gospel is recorded in a couple of situations where he says there's a broad road and it leads to destruction. And then there's a narrow road, there's a way, there's a small way, and it's got a small gate. And that's the one, while everyone else may reject it, you need to get on the way. You need to be following me. I'm the shepherd, you're part of my flock. We're going to go down this pathway here, as hard as it might be, as narrow as it might be. So everybody belonging to the way. It didn't matter. He wasn't going to sit there and go to war against just the men of the culture. It didn't matter. Men and women. Anyone who is affirming that they're a part of the way, I'm, I'm going I'm to have them bound as prisoners. He might bind them, uh, bring them bound to, to Jerusalem. Now, when he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, so he's almost at the end of his journey, probably four or five, maybe even six days into this, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Now, he goes on to describe this, by the way, and I don't want to get too much into any of that, but he describes this and gives us more detail as he tells this before the Roman officials because he's arrested and having to answer why he's preaching all of this stuff about Christ. And he talks about this more. We'll get to that, Lord willing, later in the book of Acts. But this was noon, we find out from his later description of this. So this is something super bright because it's already the middle of the day and the sun's right overhead. And Whatever it was, it knocked him to the ground. Apparently a vision of some kind of appearance of the glory of God, much like on the Mount of Transfiguration, perhaps. We don't have the detail on that, but it knocks him off of his horse. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, remember this becomes the Apostle Paul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he's not here. He left in Acts chapter 1. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet Jesus is saying now, as he breaks into time and space here, at least vocally, and says, you're persecuting me. You can see the identity and the affinity that Jesus has to his people. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? It's a weird response especially if you take the word Lord and narrowly define it the way we're used to defining it, like we do in verse number one, disciples of the Lord, we think, okay, well, that can be an appellation for Christ. That can be an appellation for God the Father, the Lord. Well, what does he, what does he mean by this? If you know who it is, are you not sure who it is coming out of the sky? You're seeing some kind of bright light. I think it's important for us to realize the word kurios in Greek that translates Lord is also translated elsewhere and rightly understood, much like we might go to England in the right context and talk about lords and ladies. We know that it, it applies to people in positions of authority. Certainly, if there's a voice coming out of the sky at midday with a big bright light, you're going to speak respectfully, thinking there's some kind of divine messenger. You could call an angel, for instance, Lord, and it would make sense in context to say and use the Greek word kurios, that's why some translations even translates to this, who are you, sir? I think it's more than just you're an important guy that popped out from behind a tree. This is like, wow, some messenger from heaven is speaking, and who are you, person of authority? might want to say that that way. And Christ answers. He said, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
That's an interesting way to even identify himself. Not the Lord Christ, but I'm Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, right? The one that you keep deriding. You don't like his titles. His name is just a very common name in the first century. It's the Hellenized form of the word Joshua. It's like, I'm Joshua, right? I'm, I'm the one that you think is nothing more than just a guy, a carpenter from the northern part of Israel. But you're persecuting me. You thought I was dead. I'm not dead. I'm speaking to you now on this road to Damascus. I got some instructions for you, verse 6. But arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, right? They knew something big had happened, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And by that, as we'll learn later as he recounts this story, they heard it. They didn't understand it. They heard the sound. They heard the voice. Like sometimes we talk about they heard it, but they didn't hear it. Your kids hear you talk a lot of times, but they don't hear you, right? That, they didn't hear him, but they did hear him. That's what was going on here, as Paul will later explain as he gives his testimony in a couple situations in the book of Acts. They didn't see anyone. Saul, verse 8, arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he's blinded. This reminds us of the first chapter of Luke, where Zacharias starts to spar with the angel, and God strikes him to where he can't speak. And so there's a physical malady. There's a physical handicap here given to him. So the big hotshot who's leading this posse, riding on his high horse, literally, they had to take him off of his horse. I mean, he's on the ground at this point. They have to pick him up and lead him by the hand right? Like he's a helpless child. And they brought him into the city, into Damascus. And for three days, now he's in Damascus, he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Now in verse 10 and following, we're going to look at Lord willing next week, how Ananias is appointed by God to connect with him, be the agent of the clarity of the gospel. And we get more information right now. He's knocked off his horse. He gets the fact that the Jesus that he's thinking should be tried as a blasphemer is actually alive from the dead. And we're set up now for a conversion of the Apostle Paul. He halts Saul in his tracks and says, you got to think about what you're doing. And to do that, you're going to do it in darkness. And you're going to do it in such a profound way, you're not even going to want to eat. I think all of us can appreciate the greatness of our salvation when we start to appreciate the greatness of the problem. And that's what happens, we often call it conviction, when we are just prior to our conversion, we have a sense of how grave the situation is. And again, I'm a preacher on a Sunday morning in a Bible church. I'm assuming most of you have this recollection. If you don't, I mean, you can pick up what we're talking about just by hearing me. Or maybe you've been convicted in the past that you don't have a conviction about sin, but this is something that Paul is getting hit with, and I want us all, I'm going to preach particularly to those of you that have this testimony, and you're going to, I just want you to start to dust off that reality of, I came to a place of really getting halted in my life, and God had to say, stop, you're going the wrong way. Here's the way. Okay, that's important for us to catch. And you need to realize this, as subtle as you may think it is, in terms of a moral grievance or crime for you to just do your own thing in life. The Bible is very clear. If you're not on the way, if you're not part of the way, if Christ is not your shepherd in life, then you are in open rebellion to God. And that's a hard way to put it, but that's an important thing for us to catch. Some of us think the word rebellion against God should only be reserved to those that make our news feeds and do horrible crimes. But in reality, the Bible says if you are not on the way... 
if you're not following Christ, if you don't hear the shepherd's voice and follow him, if that's not your submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, well, then really you've chosen to go your own way. And while that sounds very cute, even in Isaiah 53, to talk about the sheep, each of us has turned to our own way like sheep, right? We haven't followed God. We think, well, that doesn't sound too bad. That The Bible says is bad. It's horrifically bad. It's rebellion against God. And whatever form that might take, and for the Apostle Paul, you think, well, he's a terrible person. He's arresting people and having them killed. Well, he's doing it all with a very sincere, zealous motive, and you know that, right? So you cannot say he's sitting there, you know, rubbing his hands together saying, how can I do more evil in the world? He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be Phineas in the Old Testament who takes a spear and goes after the sinning Israelites who are engaging in immorality with the Moabites and say, I'm going to end this plague. Phineas killed someone, and God said, finally, someone who has enough zeal to stand up for me, has the same zeal for my name that I have. Phineas is a hero. Saul thinks he's a hero. Guess what? Every non-Christian they ever meet thinks they are a hero. I may ask them, are you a good person? The answer is yes. Think you're going to heaven when you die? The answer is yes. I mean, that's what I get time after time after time after time. And we got 93, 94% of the people in our country that are still theists. They believe there's a God. Most of them believe in the afterlife and there's some kind of good place and bad place. Most of them still do. And if you ask them which one you going to, I'm going to the good place. Why? Because I'm a good person. The reality of it is, the Bible says, is that sin is simply us being on the wrong path. It can express itself as some horrific pimp or drug dealer in some creepy part of town, or it can manifest itself as a religious zealot who's trying to do what he thinks is right, but he's missing the point. Either way, you are a sheep that is going his own way. And that's rebellion against God. Number one, if you're taking notes, we need to see the rebellion in the pre-Christian life. You need to see the rebellion in every pre-Christian life. You need to see the rebellion in your pre-Christian life. Before you became a Christian, You had to get to the place where God had said, wait a minute, what you're doing is not right. No matter how socially acceptable it might be, it is not right because it is not in association and submission to the Son of Man who has all authorities to submit all people to himself. Even that. And I remember being rebuked by people after coming and visiting the church and talking to me about how my sermons are bad because I keep talking about submitting to Christ. And they saw themselves as very good religious people that say, I don't think anyone should see themselves as having to submit themselves to Christ. It reminded me of the parable of Jesus when he says, and talking about the king going away, sending his son and the people on that place, which was not even their own, that field, that property said, we do not want this man to rule over us. What's wrong? Is he a bad man? Not a bad man. We we just don't want him to rule over us. Why? Because we'd like to rule over our, our own selves. And here's the thing, each of us has turned our own way, is by definition an act of rebellion against the leader if in fact that leader is justified in being our leader. And here's the thing about God, he is God and we are not. And until you recognize that and live that out in your life and say, yes, I submit to the Lord, I am confessing him as the Lord, that means I am not the Lord, then we are in open rebellion to God. No matter how bad that is to your neighbors, It doesn't matter. And in that regard, you need to understand that sin in the Bible is primarily a state and not just an act. Some of us don't see it that way, but you need to start seeing it that way. In the Bible, it says, the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Die 
right? It means that there is this relational separation, just like death in the physical realm is you being separated from your body. And the reality is you and I are in nice, close, intimate, relational contact here, God and his creation. And now as moral agents, you've chosen to rebel and say, I'm going to go my own way because Satan shows up and tempts you and says, did God really say, why don't you just do what's good for you? And you think the apple is good, the, the fruit on that tree is good for food. It looks good. It's beautiful. It's going to make me wise. I want to do it even though God says, don't do it. I'm going to choose my own way. That is an act of open rebellion. And all she did was have lunch. It wasn't even lunch. It was a snack. What kind of moral rebellion is that? Very simple. You no longer saw God as God. You chose to do your own thing. And that act of rebellion is one that we need to recognize takes many shapes and sizes, but it's a state, primarily a state. It is a state of being. Isaiah 59.2, right? We have had a separation because of sin. And it started, according to Romans chapter 5, way back in Genesis 3 in the garden, and that has made every successive generation be born in a state of separation from God. Matter of fact, it's put this way in Romans chapter 10, that we are at enmity with God. We're as enemies. Christ dies for us while we're enemies. Well, I, I don't think we're enemies. I mean, come on, human beings. Did you see the cute kids on our platform this morning? There's no way they're enemies of God. But the Bible says from the very beginning, Psalm 51, from the very beginning, from the point of conception, the human being is at enmity with God, hostility with God. And what does that look like? They want to go their own way. They want to do their own thing. And ask any parent about that. Grandparents may not see it, but parents see it very clearly. Kids want to go their own way. I want to do whatever I think is right to me, whatever pleases me. And while that becomes more sophisticated and perhaps more immoral by social standards, it is basically lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are the things in open rebellion to God. And Paul is now being knocked off his horse because of the way, which is Jesus. That's what he says. He is the way, the truth, the life. Jesus is the way. And these followers, the disciples, the learners, the, the sheep of the way, the, the John 10 good shepherd said, hey, follow me. And those that say, nope, I'm going to follow myself. That's very important for us to recognize that that is a decision of rebellion against God. You're listening to Focal Point and today's message titled, Saul Fighting God. And Pastor Mike will join us again in just a moment with one more announcement, so please stay with us. And don't forget, you can listen to this program or any of our previous messages anytime when you go to focalpointradio.org. You know, the Bible is filled with remarkable stories about ordinary people whose lives were transformed by an encounter with God. Reading about these changed lives is a great way to reinforce your faith or share the good news with your friends and family. So this month, when you give to support the ministry of Focal Point, we'll send you an excellent book by beloved pastor A.W. Tozer. It's a collection of his classic teachings gathered together entitled, Men Who Met God. Discover more about biblical figures who had the tremendous experience of walking and communing with God. And it's our gift to you when you give generously to Focal Point. Get in touch today by calling 888-320-5885 or contact us online at focalpointradio.org. Or if you prefer, write to us at Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, during these winter months, you may find yourself dreaming about your summer vacation. 
And while there are lots of places you can go for fun, this year perhaps you're looking for a vacation with a purpose. If so, Pastor Mike has some great news for you. Mike? Hi, Pastor Mike Fabares here. In the summer of 2024, I'll be teaching the Bible on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. I want you to come with me. From August the 4th through August the 11th, 2024, we're going to discover the splendor of God's Word while we explore the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Join us for world-class dining, daily teaching, worship. It'll be an unforgettable experience. So don't wait to book your spot. Visit focalpointministries.org Alaska to learn more. Thanks, Pastor Mike. To get more information and find out how you can join Pastor Mike on a cruise to Alaska this summer, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, that's all for today. I'm your host, Dave Drewy, inviting you back again tomorrow for part two of a message titled, Saul Fighting God. Make plans to join us Wednesday, right here on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here. Ever wish you could corner your pastor and challenge him with your toughest questions about the Bible, about faith? Well, now you can. Send me your questions. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click on Ask Pastor Mike. Or send me a note on facebook.com slash pastormike or twitter.com slash pastormike. I can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.